Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. It says this, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation. Through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21 is our main text today. It says this, For me, I want you to notice the comma there. For me, I want you to see how Paul personalized this. He doesn't just make a blanket statement. He says, for me, for for me personally, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's what he says. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ. Here's what he says, which is far better. He's literally talking about life and death. And he says, I long to be with Christ, which is far better. He is saying that death is actually better than life. What an interesting perspective for for a generation of people who are told to hold on for dear life, to keep prolonging your life for as long as you can, that this is all that there is. Do everything that you can. Hurry up, get as much as you can, accumulate as much as you can. And Paul says, I long to depart and be with Christ. That's far better than this world. That's amazing. And verse 24 says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You notice what he's doing there? He says, I prefer one thing. I prefer to long and be with Christ. I long to be with Christ. I actually want to be there. But for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of somebody else, for your sake, for your sake, which means this, that Paul has a personal preference, but he's willing to let his personal preference go to the side and put somebody else's interest above his own. That's a beautiful lesson right there. And he says, since I am persuaded of this, because I'm persuaded, I I got a sense that God has more work for me to do. And since I'll be here, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today um, that we can just come together and be in your presence and be amongst each other and open up your word and allow you to speak to us, God. And so, Father, I just pray today that that this would be a transformational Sunday, that this would be a transformational sermon, that as we hear it, we can feel ourselves changing, God. I pray that we would hear it, take it all in, and allow ourselves to be transformed. God, that we would grow and be more like Christ as we sit and study under your word. But, Father, I I pray that we're not just listeners today, but but that we are actually participators, that we would respond to what we are hearing today, 
God, God, we go to sporting events and we watch TV shows and we express ourselves right there on the couch. God, I, I, I do that myself. I watch football and I scream like I'm actually in the stadium, like they can hear me. And if I'm that passionate about football, how much more should I be about the gospel? And so, Father, let us engage with all of our senses today, not just being spectators, but being participators in what you have to say to us. And so, Father, I just thank you today that we'll grow, that we'll be more like you, God, that we'll have a greater appreciation for who you are and what you've done for us, and that at the end of the day, we will give you glory with our lives. And so we thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated. My sermon title from the sermon series Rebuild is to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. Today, we get the opportunity to examine and study one of the most famous scriptures in the entire canon of scripture. If you've been in church, you've heard the scripture quoted, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most quoted scriptures, but today I hope that our hearts and our minds would be illuminated to, to put this scripture in its proper context and let it serve as a springboard and catalyst for us about the way we live and the way we see our lives as it relates to our relationship with God. And what I think we'll see today in today's text is we'll find a man that has been completely overtaken and preoccupied with the praise of God above all else in his life. The interesting thing is that we will see a man that is sure. He, he is clear on who he is and what he has been created to do. What, what, what will be revealed is that his clarity of mission, his clarity of mission, his clarity of his assignment has, has brought him joy in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances. We will see today that, that with his preoccupation with his mission, knowing who he is called to be and what he has been called to do, when he focuses on that, it can bring him joy in the midst of adverse circumstances. And we can take away from that that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how bad it is, no matter how dark it may be, that if we focus on this one goal and this one mission, you and I can have the same kind of joy. That joy is not based on circumstances, but joy is actually found in a person, and that person's name is Jesus. This is what will be revealed to us today, that joy is found in a person, and Paul is preoccupied with this. He understands that from the foundation of the world, that, that he was created with a specific purpose by his creator, and that was to bring his creator glory. He, he, he knew that his mission was to bring glory to his creator with his life. And if you're wondering about glory and what that looks like, I want to tell you this about glory. Everything that has been created has been created with the ultimate intention of bringing glory to God. Nothing God has ever made has been made without having an ultimate intention and purpose. God doesn't design or make anything without intention. God doesn't do anything by accident, but God is intricate in his design, and God is intricate in his plan. God has a plan and an intention for everything. Everything that has been created has been created with the sole purpose of bringing glory to God. 
When I think about the Bible and I look over the tapestry of Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New, the, the Bible tells us, even in the Psalms, that the heavens declare the glory of God, things that we can observe with our own eyes. When we look at his creation, when we look at it, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. Isaiah 55 and 12 tells us that the mountains and the hills will break into singing before him. It tells us that all of the trees of the field will clap their hands, even the trees are clapping their hands and giving God glory. I need to pause right here. Oftentimes, I am perplexed that if the trees can give God glory, if the trees can clap their hands, why is it that people can come into the presence of God and sit there and never give God praise and never give God glory? That if the trees can clap their hands to the living God, then so can you and I. When I think about glory, glory, what does glory mean? It just means honor. It means to reflect his, his honor, his glory, his, his excellent reputation, his majesty. And Isaiah tells us that everyone that bears the name of God, that bears his name, has been created for his glory. That, that, means, that means you too. And so I'm going to put this in perspective because I know us. I know how we do Whenever we fall short, there's one scripture that we all keep in our back pocket. Here's one scripture that we all keep in our back pocket to make us feel better when we fall. We pull out Romans 3, verse 23, and when you and I, we make a mistake, here's what we say, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of what? God. We, we say that, and if we understood it, what we're really saying is, I've fallen short of the standard of glory that I am supposed to represent with my life. I know that there is a standard that I am supposed to represent God in a certain way that I'm supposed to bring honor to him with my life, and I have fallen short of the glory. But if you have fallen short of the glory of God, just like I have in my life, God didn't just leave us there. He sent his son to the earth to reflect the glory perfectly the way that you and I were incapable of doing. Hebrews 1 tells us this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the expression of his nature. If you want to know what the glory of God looks like, all you need to do is look at Jesus. That, that, that's what the scripture is telling us. And so when we think about our own lives and having been uh, redeemed by Christ, having been saved from sin, having, having, having life in Christ because of the cross and his resurrection, when we said that we were going to follow Jesus and abandon everything else, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, he said, you are not your own, for you are brought with the price, therefore give God glory with your body that we've been created to give glory to our creator, that our lives are supposed to reflect his glory. And as we journey in our relationship with God, as, as we are sanctified by the spirit of God, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We continually reflect God's glory as we grow in our walk with God. And so here's the point. The sum total of what we've been created to do is to bring praise and glory to God. And this is what Paul, the writer of this beautiful letter, understood about his life that God had breathed breath in his lungs 
so that with his words and with his life, he would proclaim and declare the glory of God. Paul, at the time of this letter, is under house arrest in Rome. Paul is chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, awaiting the verdict of what they would do to him. Paul's life hangs in the balance. Paul does not know whether he will live or die. Paul is under arrest, chained to a soldier. He's there because Paul has been accused of causing civil unrest, causing a public disturbance for preaching the gospel. And so now he is uh, under house arrest, and he's not in prison like we think of prison. You spend your time there, and you wait uh, until you pay back your debt to society. No, in these days and times, you are only in prison waiting to find out if you were going to live or if you were going to die. And that is the tension in the text. And when we get to this particular section of the letter, Paul is looking to the future and he writes to his church from his heart on what he discerns is about to happen. But he also reveals his heart posture in the midst of certainty. And Paul has a proper heart posture even in the midst of uncertainty. Paul has joy even in the midst of uncertainty not knowing whether he will live or die, which says this to you and I, even when we're uncertain about life and what may happen with us and what may happen to us, we can still have joy because joy is not found in circumstances, but joy is found in a person. Found in a person. And the first thing that we'll see is that God's glory is Paul's joy. And the primary way we know that this is the case is that last week when we studied, we ended at verse 18, it told us that there were some who were preaching Christ with ulterior motives. Some were preaching Christ not out of a pure heart, not in love, not, not out of love for the gospel. They were preaching it accurate, but they were preaching it with the wrong motives. They were preaching it so that they could enhance Paul's suffering. They, in some kind of way, were trying to get at the Apostle Paul or undermine his authority or take his position or something of that nature, and they were proclaiming Christ, and the Apostle Paul was not mad at them. He was not upset with them. He actually said, I'm going to rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. And so Paul says, even if it hurts me, if God is glorified, then I'm okay with it, and I can get joy from that because my aim is for God to be glorified. That, that, that's beautiful. And so, so Paul is captivated by Christ. All he cares about is seeing his Savior exalted. His greatest ambition is for Christ to be made known. What a clarity of calling. What, what a way that, that to be so clear. Paul is clear about who he is and what he has been called to do. He knows why he is here. Paul is clear. He has clarity. And so many of us can benefit from some clarity. But I'm trying to tell you, your life is not as foggy and uncertain as you think it is. I know you've been told that you need to have a certain thing and accomplish a certain thing in order for your life to have significance and value. But that is not the truth. If you bear the name of Jesus, you already have a clear calling. And I pray that we can highlight that in the scripture today. Can you imagine? Imagine what it's like to wake up tomorrow morning, no matter where you go to work or where you go to school or what you have to do. Can you imagine waking up tomorrow to have no doubts, no confusion, to put both feet on the ground and be clear about what your responsibility is? And that's not just for Paul. That is for every follower of the Lord Jesus. Your purpose is clear, and that is to declare the good news through your words and through your deeds. 
your mission is clear. The guesswork is no longer. And Paul is like, no matter the circumstances, whether I'm in chain or in chains or not, it does not change why I am here. I am here for a reason, here for a purpose, here with an assignment. I am clear, and you can be clear too, that even if your circumstances are not ideal to you, even if they are not the preferred circumstances, it does not change the message. It should not change what you're saying. It should not change what your mission is. Matter of fact, Dr. Eugene Peterson surmises this verse like this. He says, Paul thinks like this, they didn't shut me up. They gave me a pulpit. So Paul even sees his hard circumstances as an opportunity for him to preach the gospel, to boast in this weakness so that people can see God's strength in Paul's life. This is what it means to bring glory to God. Also, Paul is saying, I know this is my circumstance. I might get killed if I continue to preach the gospel, but I trust in the sovereignty of God even in this. He doesn't know how things are going to turn out. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He knows that he is headed for salvation either way. I think Paul is taking a page out of Job's book when Job said, even this, even this hard circumstance of losing everything will turn out for my deliverance. That's beautiful. What would it be like to know for certain that I'm just here to tell people about the goodness of God and I trust the sovereignty of God so much that I'm not concerned with the outcome. The outcome is not up to me. The outcome is up to God. But since he's my father, he wouldn't do anything to harm me. So even if the, uh, even if the alternative is death, I know that I get to be with him. That's a beautiful clarity of calling. And so Paul says, I know this will work out to, for my deliverance. I know that, that I will be saved through this experience. I know that even this will lead me to the place that I need to be. This will be for my salvation either way. And there are two reasons that I want to explore today while Paul says that this hard circumstance will lead to his salvation. I want to give you two reasons. We're going to look at two reasons today why Paul says, even in prison, even under house arrest, even chained, being in a place that I do not want to be on a daily basis with a person that I don't want to be with, even this, even this, God is using this for my salvation. The end will be the same whether I am free or if I die. And here's why Paul says this will lead to his salvation. And the first reason might surprise you. Number one, he says, because of the prayers of the church. The prayers of the church will lead to his salvation. Paul is literally saying that the prayers of the church will help to carry him to his salvation. And what Paul is doing is Paul is highlighting the significance of the role of prayer in the church. There's a reason, though, I believe that when we talk about prayer in the church, that we don't really, it doesn't really move the needle for us. That we are a bunch of people who, when people tell us about our problems, we say, I'll be praying for you, and then we walk away never to remember what they told us in the first place. We, we now just say we'll be praying for people as a gesture, but not intentionally praying for them because we don't understand the significance of it, especially for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And here's why I think one of the most underrated hallmarks of Christianity is endurance. One of the most underrated hallmarks of Christianity is endurance. 
Why do you say that? Because the Christian life is hard, and we would be foolish enough to think that we can go from A to Z of our journey of faith without the help of other people. But one of the means of grace that God has given us, one of the beautiful, most powerful means of grace that God has given us to allow us to endure, to go through some suffering, to go through some sickness, to go through some sadness, to go through some heartache, to go through some heartbreak, to go through some setbacks and disappointments and letdowns. One of the things that God has given us to endure all seasons and hang on to our faith is the prayers of the saints. And Paul is literally saying that there is a corporate responsibility and obligation to pray for the spiritual growth and the endurance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When I read that last night, I had been reading it all week, but when it hit me last night, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I am a pastor and I oftentimes complain about inconsistent people. When I don't see them in church, when I know they're not showing up on time, when I know they're not serving with a glad and a free heart, when I know that they got issues and they're allowing everything in life to distract them from the main goal, which is Jesus Christ and giving him their heart and doing all that he commanded us to do. When I think about people, I can sometimes complain about them, but last night I was convicted to stop complaining and start praying because maybe somebody's so weak that they need the prayers that can give them strength. Have you been complaining about people? Oh, for those of us who serve, oh man, we do it all the time because there's a lot to, there's a lot to complain about because, because oftentimes in a church, you have a committed group of people who are always there, who are always consistent, and then you have those who need a little extra encouragement. And it is so easy for us to shake our head at them, even if it's merited. But before we shake our head, maybe we should bend and get on our knees. Because Paul is saying in this text that the prayers of the Philippians are empowering him to hold on to his faith in the midst of adverse circumstances. And brothers and sisters, we are living in a time and a day and an age and a place where because of all the things that have happened, many people are falling away from faith. Because of the pandemic, people have just used this as a reason to no longer engage with God or the church. And I'm not undermining the fears that people may have about safety. I'm talking about the people that you see on your social media that are taking vacations to foreign places but not coming to the local church. That, that's what I'm referencing. And some, some people have literally allowed this to punch them in the chest never to return or never to engage again or have lost their fervor that they once had. And what I'm saying is, is that you need to have a people that are on your prayer list that you are praying for that you once knew that were hot, but maybe now they're lukewarm. And so we should pray for these people because they need our strength. Paul understands this. We have people who are among us that are weak, that are indifferent, that are inconsistent, that are suffering, that are sick, that are on the verge of downright apostasy, meaning they are on the verge of falling away from the faith. And we have a responsibility to bring those people before the Lord in prayer and pray that God will supply them with an outpouring of his spirit so that they can hold on to their faith and keep 
keep on walking with Jesus. And Paul is saying, I can stand here and be courageous in my faith and hold on to what God has called me to do because I know that the church in Philippi is praying for me. And what he's saying is there is a way in God's mystery and God's economy that the prayers of the saints have an effectual working, that it works in the lives of other people. The effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much means that if you pray, it will work. It'll work. We all need this because to do ministry or just live the Christian life in a way that God called us to do without prayer is like attempting to drive from New York to L.A. with no gas. You can start, but you won't get far. And that is what it's like to try to walk this Christian life without prayer. Prayer is important. But even if the saints are not praying, I love God. Even, even if the saints are not praying for you, even if you know that they're not praying for you, even if you're not sure people are praying for you, Paul says, I know this will lead to my salvation because of the prayers of the saints, but also he says this will lead to my salvation because of the spirit of Christ. Paul knows that the goal of the Christian life is not just to start, but to finish. And the good news for you and I is that if God saved us, God will keep us saved, that our salvation is not up to us from beginning to end, but rather salvation is God's from beginning to end. I don't, I don't think you believe me. Our Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, He that began a good work in you will bring it to completion or carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, meaning this, that if God saved you, God will keep you saved, and God will complete your salvation. So even if the church is not doing its job, God is going to always do his job. And so Paul says, my eager expectation and hope is that I won't be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul is saying, even in prison, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm praying and I'm believing that even this won't shut my mouth, that it won't affect my boldness. What he's saying is this, his audience doesn't affect his agenda. Think about this. How many times have we been in a position or situation where God gives us an opportunity to share the good news with the person who needs to hear it. And because of fear of their response, we keep our mouths closed and don't say anything to anybody. How many of us know people in our families? How many people that we have a relationship with that we know that they, they need to hear the good news of the gospel. We can share everything with them. We share about music and about songs and about clothing and even about hamburgers. But when it comes to something that will actually save their lives, we get timid, timid and we get scared. But Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He isn't concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about Jesus's reputation. That's what's important to him. So if you say you represent Jesus, be public about it, regardless of the consequences. He says, God will get the glory in my body. When people give me a compliment, I'll say, to God be the glory. People say, man, you did a, you did a wonderful job doing the thing that you just did. To, to God 
be the glory. Man, that is a nice outfit. It ain't got nothing to do with Jesus. But God, be the glory. Your hair looks nice. Who did your hair? Jesus did my hair. God, be the glory. Man, you did an awesome job on this project that you're working on. To God, be the glory. Man, the way you just did the thing that you just did and said what you just said and worked the thing that you just worked, man, that, that was awesome. How did you do it? Well, I can't take credit for it. To God, be the glory. We have to get comfortable telling people to God, be the glory. We are called to bring glory to his name, not our own. And so he says... He will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. He will be shown to be great no matter what happens to me. And so you have to ask the question, how can a person, especially one in his predicament, have this type of perspective? How is it possible? How is it possible to, to know that your life hangs in the balance and all you can do is think on and talk about Jesus? Well, I think our text, our main text of the day, describes it. Verse 21, Paul says this. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to be cognizant and aware that all of life is to be representative of him and to do his will, to obey his word, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, to be preoccupied and consumed with the things of God, to do that, that that, that will become our identity. There's one person that said, the true worth of a man is to be measured by the objects he pursues. The true worth of a man is to be measured by the object he pursues. Well, I don't think we have a measuring stick long enough to measure the Apostle Paul because his pursuit was Jesus. His pursuit was Jesus. And Paul says, for me, he makes it personal. His relationship with God was so close that he derived everything in his existence based off of his relationship with God. Paul is the same person that wrote Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 5, that said he's been made alive with Christ. That he was made alive with Christ. Like you and I were made alive with Christ, meaning that he is in us and we are in him. And everything that we do comes from that posture. With that understanding, that, 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 that awareness, every decision that I make, every action that I take, that it is to be lived out in the honor of God that, that, that has made me alive we, we can imagine that as Paul grew in his faith, because for some of us it doesn't happen overnight, but Paul probably learned how to prioritize. Paul probably learned how to push things to the side and throw off his plate things that were taking his attention away from Jesus so that he could possess more of Christ. And maybe for some of us, there are things that we all can move from our lives so that we can make more room for Jesus. Because we can all use some more Jesus. But I understand this flies in the face of everything that we learn, that we live in a generation that as we scroll on our phones, it tells us that we control our own destiny. It tells us that we can be go-getters. It tells us to climb the ladder to success. It tells us ownership is the key. You got to own something. If I see one more video about owning something, 
But for us, even if we own it, we don't own it. And here's why. We've been bought with the price, with the precious blood of Jesus. We are not our own. So everything we do, we do it to the glory of God. Paul said in one verse, no matter whatever you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. That everything that we are supposed to do, we do it for the glory of God. If the food is good on my table, to God be the glory. That, that if I'm, I'm enjoying my day and it's sunny outside, God bring the sun back, and the sun is outside, and I'm enjoying the beach, and I'm hearing the waves crash up against the ocean, and I'm seeing all of this wonderful stuff, all I got to do is say, God, thank you. God, thank you for this. I, I know I can see with my own eyes that your creation is declaring your glory, and I want to declare it along with them. To God be the glory. That we take the small things for granted that we should be praising God for. So we have to ask ourselves, for me to live is what? Is it Christ or is it something else? To live is Christ means that every area of my life is an intentional signpost to Jesus. Every area of my life is an intentional signpost to Jesus. Paul has a very interesting perspective because even he says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I think that we have a very distorted view of death in our culture. And when I say what I'm about to say, I don't mean that we go seeking death out. I'm not saying that you go run and knock on death's door. I'm not saying you go and be crazy like one of those people that go on vacation and jump off a rock into the water. I'm not saying that if you can't swim, you get out there with no life jacket on. I'm not telling you this. What I think we need to understand is, for the Christian, we need to have a different perspective on death. Paul saw death as a means to bring him closer to Christ. That to be in Christ, whether I live or die, I'm with him and he's with me. But if I die, I get God in greater measure, because it means that I get him uninterrupted by sin and suffering. So when he thinks about death, he has a very different perspective than you and I do. I think it can be put practically like this. Jo Jonathan Edwards said this, many Christians live like distracted travelers who stay at a hotel on their way to a destination, but never move on to the place that they are heading that we get stuck and don't realize that there's more than this. And what he means is that we live with such an attachment to our present lives and the things that we enjoy that we can live without meaning. We can live as if heaven doesn't exist. And so when I, when I say this, I want to put this in proper context because you know at funerals, we put everybody in heaven. Have you ever been to a funeral? They say, oh, he's in a better place. And you think to yourself, I, I knew, dude. I don't really know about that. He, his shadow never darkened the door of a church. He never talked about God the whole time I knew him. He talked about everything else except God. But when we get to the funeral, we put people in heaven. But then we know people who really walk with Jesus. We know people who walk with Jesus from beginning to end. We know people that didn't need money to serve Jesus. 
We know people that didn't need creature comforts to serve Jesus. They just said Jesus is enough for us. And so when I talk about death in this life, I'm talking about those people that, that know that there's a better life than this one. Do we ever stop to think that, that there's more to life than a degree and a job, a family, a car, a house, and still we, we somehow get those things and we're still like, man, there is more to get. Maybe it's because something inside of us knows that those things were never meant to fill us, that this life is not the end, but there is more to come on the other side. It is a better life to come. In the new heavens and in the new earth, there will not be sin, sickness, disease, heartache, racism, all of the injustices, pandemics, COVID, cancer. None of that will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. We have something to look forward to, what we will have uninterrupted relationship with God. This is what we look forward to. So for Paul, Death for a Christian is not loss, it's gain. Yeah, we suffer loss when people die, and we should hurt and mourn, but we as Christians don't mourn like those who have no hope. We can mourn differently knowing that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a beautiful promise. And so when Paul assesses life and death, Paul is not like, oh man, I got to live, I got to live. Paul literally says in verse 22 and 23, I don't know which one I should choose. I don't know which one I should choose. He, he says, I'm, t I'm, I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Which is far better. How can he have this perspective? The way to have confidence in the face of death is to look to the one who conquered death, to look the one who, who said death is defeated. We oftentimes wear crosses and we tattoo crosses on our body, but I think we forget that the cross is a symbol of death, that the cross is a symbol of death, that when we see the cross, we think about Jesus. We think about Jesus who died, and we think about those who are in Christ. We died with him, but we've also been raised with him and are alive with him. And the life that we live, we live by carrying our cross daily, saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. We ought to live each day in the reality that our life is not our own and that everything we do is ultimately done with the sole purpose of making Christ known and bringing God glory. Our life is not our own. We've been called to live for him. If you don't believe me, I want to show you a couple scriptures that shows us that what God has done for us changes everything. Romans 14 verses 7 through 9. Watch this. It says this, for we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 said this, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. What does that mean? It means that the gospel changes everything. The salvation that we experience in Christ frees us from the sin of selfishness and an empty salvation. 
it frees us to live for him. So it makes sense now when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. John Calvin said this, to me, Christ is gain in life and in death. What a perspective to know that God has us from beginning to end. Jesus is the only cause to make life worth living and death worth dying. And Paul has a decision to make. Paul says, I don't know which one I should choose. It's pretty much hypothetical because he's not sure what's going to happen to him. But Paul senses, if we read the text properly, we sense that Paul is uncertain what's going to happen, but Paul actually discerns or has faith in an outcome that God will allow him to live and live past this situation, that at some point he believes that he will be free. And so Paul says, I long to depart and be with Christ, but it is more necessary for your sake, for, for your sake, that, that if I'm alive, that means fruitful work for me. I get to disciple other people. I get to walk with other people. And so what we see here, when Paul says that, that to, to be alive is fruitful work for me, I don't know what I should choose. I'm torn between the two. Death is far better, but for, for me to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What we see here is a picture of his personal preference giving way to sacrificial service. And we see a model of a man who has a preference, but his preference dies because he's willing to sacrifice for the sake of another. And so this other thing that brings Paul, Paul joy is that he puts others first. Paul says that he is persuaded, meaning that he he doesn't know for a fact what's going to happen, but he is convinced that he will live through this. And he wants to live through this for their growth, for their prog progress, for their joy in the faith. He wants to be able to go back and serve the Philippians. He wants his life to be used to help walk with others. I begin to think about this thing, and I was thinking, man, there are people who've been in church for a long time, who've understood the gospel for a long time, but have yet to come alongside and try to disciple somebody else. It reminds me of the scripture where Paul says, at some point, some of you should have become teachers. But we have people who just sit and absorb information, never living out the practical implications of it, which means walking alongside and discipling others. Some of us older Christians need to be walking alongside younger Christians. Like, like, we should care that much that God has put me here not just to collect a check and go to my job and do my thing and look forward to the weekend and have a good time and do it and get a drink and do all these things. That maybe God has put me here so that I can serve some other people. That, that maybe I can walk alongside somebody else that God has put in my path. Paul says it is fruitful work for me. That means this, that if you are still alive and you have breath in your lungs, there's work for you you to do. There's work for you to do, but we see Paul putting the interests of others above his own, and that means even serving in, in the local church.
And we have people who refuse to serve in the local church. We're content with sitting on the sidelines. To refuse to serve the body of Christ is tantamount to refusing to serve Christ. So I am perplexed oftentimes how some can just sit back and observe and see what our Savior did. Scriptures are clear, tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So Paul and Jesus are not above serving. Why are we? What if your church, church asked you to do something that you didn't feel was your preference? What if your church asked you to get your hands dirty? Would you scoff at it because it's beneath you? Or would you follow the model of Paul and Jesus and say that whatever needs to be done, here I am. If you think that serving is beneath you, I want you to consider Jesus, the son who is equal to God, who left heaven and came to earth to become a man and assume the role of a slave, laying down his life on a cross. The scripture tells us that he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. Jesus humbled himself to serve sinful humanity, to serve you and I. And so it's no wonder that serving becomes Paul's modus operandi. To bookend this thing, we begin with the glory of God. But if you look at verse 26, Paul says something key. Paul says something key. He says, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ may abound. What Paul is saying is this, that ultimately... I want to come back, not just to serve you, but I want to come back so that you can see what God did through your prayers and then you can give glory to God. That you can see what God has done, that God took a man who was in chains about to die, freed him to come and serve you, that God loved you that much, that you see God move on behalf of you and move by your prayers and see a man come to serve you, and that should cause you to give glory to God. That all of life is an exercise in giving glory and honor to God. And so for Paul, when he says to live is Christ, what he means is to live is to give glory to God, that I withhold nothing from him. What, what if we had, what if we had a church, when I'm, not, when I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about the church. What if the church lived for the glory of God? What, what if the church took up the mantra to live is Christ? 
What if we were a bunch of people who just put our personal preferences aside and just said, whatever it needs to be done, we'll do it? What would that look like if we intentionally, by the Spirit's power, daily served other people? What would that look like? I'll tell you what it would look like. Needs would be met. People would be healed. God would do miracles among us, not because of some supernatural thing that fell out of the sky, but because we would be the answer to other people's prayers. But that only happens when we say to live is Christ, to die is gain. Sounds far-fetched because especially millennials and Generation Z or Zennials or whatever it's called, whatever. I don't know what it's called, robots, whatever. We've bombarded since, been bombarded since birth about living for ourselves. We've been told that we can be whatever we want to become. And the truth of the matter is practically that's a lie. It does not matter how much I want to be an NBA basketball player. Some things are not going to happen. So I may not be able to be the best baller. But what there are no limitations on is being the best servant. That I can serve God my whole heart for the rest of my life. And that is what God has called us to do. To serve somebody. To be moved by the gospel. To be moved by what has been done for us. So I hope that this has moved your heart, caused you to assess, caused you to reflect on our, on our prayer life towards others. Our trust in the sovereignty of God. Our perspective on our life. Our perspective on death. And ultimately, the understanding that we've all created to bring glory to God. To live is Christ. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.